Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is July 9th. In 1941, British cryptologists helped break the secret code used by German army to direct ground-to-air operations on the Eastern Front. British and Polish experts had already broken many of the Enigma codes for the Western Front. Enigma was the Germans' most sophisticated coding machine necessary to secretly transmitting information. The Enigma machine, invented in 1919 by Hugo Koch, a Dutchman, looked like a typewriter and was originally employed for business purposes. The German army adopted the machine for wartime use and is considered encoding system unbreakable. They were wrong. The British had broken their first Enigma code as early as the German invasion of Poland and had intercepted virtually every message sent through the occupation of Holland and France. Now with the German invasion of Russia, the Allies needed to be able to intercept coded messages transmitted on the second Eastern Front. The first breakthrough occurred on July 9th regarding German ground air operations, but various keys could continue to be broken by the British over the next year, each conveying information of higher secrecy and priority than the next. For example, a series of decoded messages nicknamed Weasel proved extremely important in anticipating German anti-aircraft and anti-tank strategies against the Allies. These decoded messages were regularly passed to the Soviet High Command regarding German troop movement and planned offenses and back to London regarding the mass murder of Russian prisoners and Jewish concentration camp victims. And then in 1984, York's divisional fire commander was fast asleep when the phone rang in the early hours of July 9th. But within minutes, Alan Stowe was fighting to save the city's most significant building from destruction. Thirty years on, witnesses clearly remember the devastation caused by its lightning bolt which set fire to the York Minster's south transept, destroying its roof and causing 2.25 million pounds worth of damage. My immediate thought was disbelief, Mr. Stowe said, remembering the 3 a.m. phone call. And knowing the Minster, as I did, and its security and fire defenses, I thought, this can't be true. Then I got onto Ted Caster Road and could see a glow in the sky. The previous night had been a peculiar, airless evening during a hot, dry summer, said Mr. Stowe. The fire crew in York spent part of it watching lightning zip across the sky. Just a few hours later, at 2.35 British Standard Time, the control room at North Allerton received word that the Minster was ablaze. By the time Mr. Stowe arrived at 3.10, a third of the roof had been obliterated. The burning timbers were exposed and the fire was progressing rapidly, he said. Bits of burning debris were leaping into the sky and the fire had almost spread through the, to the central tower. It became clear the roof was beyond saving and bringing it down was necessary to save the rest of the building. We positioned a water jet under the burnt timbers and they went down like a row of dominoes, said Mr. Stowe. They thundered down. I wouldn't have believed that stone floor could shake, but my word it did. Crews from across North Yorkshire were called to the scene with 114 firefighters tackling the blaze. Meanwhile, the Minster staff and clergy were removing as many artifacts as possible from the building. John David, Master Mason at the Minster, was one of those involved in the salvage operation. It was quite a traumatic night. It was surreal, he said. There was a fear the whole thing would go up, but we were busy getting the valuables out. The next day, people were in tears and very upset, but as craftsmen, the first thing we thought was, let's put it back, let's rebuild it. There was no doubt we could do it. We wanted to put it back the way it was. 
By 524 a.m., the fire was under control, and as morning broke, the true scale of the devastation became clear. An investigation into the cause of the fire ruled out an electrical or gas fault, while arson was discounted due to inaccessibility of the roof. Some churchgoers feared the fire was a sign from God in response to the consecration of the minster three days earlier, Bishop Durham David Jenkins. He made the news for saying that he did not believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, but subsequent tests concluded the fire was almost certainly caused by a lightning striking a metal electrical box inside the roof. However, with the evidence destroyed in the blaze, the official resort could only report could only conclude that it was 80% possible. The fire was caused by lightning and 10% each for arson and electrical fault. A restoration project to return the building to its former glory was finally completed in 1988 at a cost of 2.25 million pounds. The site's masonry team spent a year recarving bosses and stonework above the rose window and arches, while half a dozen bosses were designed by children in competition run by Blue Peter. It is thought the rose window designed in the early in the 16th century to celebrate the marriage of King Henry VII and Elizabeth of York in 1486 reached the temperatures of 450 degrees Celsius during the fire. The glass cracked in about 40,000 places but was saved following painstaking work by York Glazers Trust. Bob Littleward, former superintendent of works at the Minster, was instrumental in replacing the vaulted ceiling and roof which were gutted in the blaze. The day after the fire, he was offered 260 oak trees by people wanting to help rebuild the minster and tasked with convincing the church authorities to let him rebuild the roof with timber in keeping with the original design. Wood was agreed upon as the preferred material but on condition that the parts of the new structure be coated with fire retardant plaster. Everything was gone, Mr. Littlewood said. We had to literally start from scratch. I didn't want anything modern and we felt it all should be done traditionally. Thankfully, the dean and chapter agreed and I had the staff who were capable of doing the work. Four years later, after the fire destroyed the south transept, the restoration was completed. It was a year ahead of schedule, and thanks to the generosity of public donations coupled with the insurance money, Mr. Littlewood said, everything, everyone buckled down and helped. It was a tremendous challenge, but I felt delighted at the end of the day. It was such a success and, in fact, a big improvement on what was there before. And finally, on this day in 1995, the Grateful Dead played the second and final night of their tour closing run at Chicago Soldier Field, featuring an opening performance by the band. The show marked the completion of a long-winded and winding spring-summer tour, a run through which lead guitarist Jerry Garcia seemed to, like many, a shell of his former self. Once again, he was beleaguered by addiction, this time in front of a huge stadium-sized venue packed with a brim with excited fans. Garcia struggled through equipment difficulties all night, eventually having to replace his rosebud guitar with his older Tiger. According to Bob Weir in his Netflix documentary, The Other One, he and Garcia shared some short but sweet words as they walked off stage. Always a hoot, Garcia said. Always a hoot. Exactly one month later, on August 9, 1995, Jerry Garcia passed away, his heart finally giving out after years of hard living and declining health. On July 9, 1995, at Soldier Field became The Grateful Dead's final show. While not among their best shows by a long stretch, 7995 still packs an emotional punch to this day in light of its significance as Jerry's last performance. You can feel the weight of the show's cosmic significance throughout, particularly on songs like Encore Closer, Box of Rain. And of course, there was the gorgeous yet bittersweet mid-second set, So Many Roads, with Garcia's moving vocals ensuring that there was not a dry eye in the stadium by the time the tune was finished, despite some musical struggles. You can watch a full video of So Many Roads from the final Grateful Dead show at Soldier Field on 7995 via YouTube.
You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com Enigma Code Broken at History.com York Minster Gutted by Fire at www.bbc.com and Grateful Dead Jerry's Final Show at LiveForLiveMusic.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.